Hi, I'm Sandeep Patel. I am a partner at QED Investors. I head our investments into Asia. Ambitious founders trying to build their startups as rocket ships need to win over an integral stakeholder. And that is the venture capital investor. After all, they are the ones who supply the fuel for the rocket ship. Conversations with VCs are truly fascinating. They have a completely unique lens with which they look at startups. A VC is able to look at a startup dispassionately and analyze it by using his understanding of the market and his thesis on what kind of business models will scale. In this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast, your host Akshay Dutt talks with Sandeep Patil, who is the Asia Head of QED, which focuses on funding fintech startups. In this candid conversation, Sandeep shares his thesis on why India, why fintech and what kinds of businesses model scale. This conversation is a masterclass on how to build a startup that, that attracts global investors. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming platform to learn about building rocket ship startups. In many ways, Capital One was the first fintech that ever was. You are very big on data and very big on technology. When I joined in 2001, that time the joke around the company was that we had the third biggest database in the United States, CI being the biggest, right? Because we used to download, like anyone would apply for a credit card to Capital One, we would download their bureau file. A bureau file would have last seven years of your financial transactions. I think if I recall correctly, again, some 800 different data boards per user is what we would look at. We used to pay fairly little attention to the FICO score, but we pay a lot of attention to what exactly is sitting your data with. And FICO, uh, and so, for people who don't know, is the civil equivalent score. Yeah, it's a fair score, civil equivalent. And Capital became renowned for, for its ability to leverage data to drive better outcomes for the customers. Famously, we were the first half of 2000 first half of the first decade capital one was the biggest credit card originator in the united states bigger than Citibank, bigger than gs manhattan bigger than any other institution and we are very strong in the super prime end of the market so very low risk customers we are able to parse their risk even better than the best lenders out there better than amex i would say right and then on the other side on the subprime so new to credit group also we are very good because these days don't have well-formed bureau files. The data is not very deep, but it's very sparse. And we are able to sparse that, parse through that data to identify which are the nuggets of information that will help us understand that this customer is relatively low risk. Right? Um, so anyways, Capital Wealth the, not only was a fintech in that sense, but it was also fintech in its operations. It was completely meritocratic. So for a 20-year-old joining Capital One, I think within six months, I was responsible for 7 million inactive users trying to get them to reactivate. So I was running a quintessential PNL, if you will. The PNL was zero, to be precise. No revenues, no, no, no losses from this portfolio. But when I did start growing it, that responsibility stays with you. So when you're doing a program on them, a marketing campaign on them, activation program on them, you, sh you measure the test and control and... Therefore, you quantify how quickly. Two, four years later, the team I ran was called Balance Building. That was the largest asset gatherer for the bank. 
right? So if my company, asset gathering to be precise, is people who have credit cards with Capital One, we would get them to transfer all other debt to Capital One because the card, the interest rate on the card was lower than whatever installment loan that you have, auto loan you may have, etc. So you get them to move that over to the card. And that became the largest driver of growth for the company. So for, for a company, look, I would claim credit that I'm amazing and therefore the game is this responsibility, but equally, and perhaps more, right? You have to be in a meritocratic organization that can see the value of, of kind of the this kind of thinking, right? Unsurprisingly, right? I'm a big fan of Capital One. I'm a big fan of the folks there. So... When in 2020, Nigel called, Bill called, eventually I spoke to other folks at QD, like uh, most of them are ex-Capital One. And this was essentially Capital One alumni, diaspora, coming to venture capital, right? That was the core operating model. And that was just marvelous. It was too hard to say no to, right? There are other kind of structural reasons as well. Look, today is actually a great example, right? If you go back and look at India and venture capital market, most tourist funds have vacated the space. Tourist fund. Tourist fund, give me an example of a tourist fund. Explain the tourist behavior, right? Which is, I as an investor have an allocation this month because we raised new fund. So I have an allocation. So I'll fly down to the hottest geographies, sign up two, three deals, right? My allocation is done. Then I'll fly out, right? And then till the next fund gets raised two years, three years later, you won't hear much from me. I won't bother you much either. We'll track the performance two, three years later again, neither return to Apple. So I didn't want to be part of tourist fund, right? Because they don't have any vested interest in building the ecosystem. They want to benefit, right? They contribute also, to be honest. Capital is not a small contribution. So they contribute to the ecosystem also. But I wanted to be part of a story where we actually help build an ecosystem. And QD had demonstrated that, right? QD entered LATAM in 2015. It used to be a US fund before that. I think 14 or 15 is when they entered. But after that, systematically, they work with the ecosystem to build it out. To the extent that today, QD is one of the biggest funds in LATAM, right? I think all but one unicorn, at some point someone had done that, all but one unicorn has QD investment. Uh, in 2021, that was shined. So very significant player, but also work with the seed uh, investors, work with angel investors, work with the like founders. They really the themselves into the ecosystem. Yeah, embed themselves so that kind of they become local or native to the land, but also embed themselves in the sense of building the capabilities, right? Like contributing to development of founders, development of companies, volunteering their own time to speak with people when they don't have when we are not even going to invest. So the we measure an NPS as a venture capital fund, which not many VCs do, and it always sits at high 80s for that and reason. Who is the audience? This is like All NPS the, from founders? Or? Yeah, NPS from founders. NPS from founders. So when Nigel and Will and others approached me, then this felt like the right proposition, right? Because I wanted to be part of this investment story into India, but I also wanted to be part of a player who wanted to be a long-term ecosystem-oriented player, and Yuri was one of that. So it made a tremendous sense to join the fund. Why did they what enter India? Like, what excited them about India? So, to be honest, when I joined, we were thinking about, will it be India? Will it be Southeast Asia? Will it be other parts of Asia? Because that time, even Far East was a thing to think of. Would we go to Australia, for example? So when we joined, it was test and learn with me joining as well. 
that I'll build out the case for what exactly we want to do in the broader Asian geography, very, very candidly. But we are very rapidly then centered around India. And uh, hindsight is 2020, but I would say our thesis was driven by three main factors, right? The first factor is the macro part of the story. So everyone raves and rants about India being like, what, now the fifth largest economy in the world, GDP growth rate of 8 to 10%. It becomes national news when IFC or someone revises up or down that number. Right. These are catchy headlines, right? But that's not what I what gets me excited, right? What gets me excited is if you look at global economies, how they have performed over the last 25 years, there have been three main crises. There was a for, a, for a, us who are quite old and up there, I would say like dot com and 9 11 was the first crisis, right? Because dot com caused tech valuations to go down, oil crisis following 9 11 caused a bit of inflation. Here in UK, there was a credit downturn. A lot of economies expressed had some credit event because of it. That was the first crisis. The second big crisis was 2008 and Neiman was again the crescendo of it, but 2007 onwards, subprime went up. A lot of investing activity went down. All the regulations that came on banks in 2008, 2009, 2010 even, caused to the fixed income crisis in 2011, right? So that three, four year period was a fairly long just period for global economies. And then the third period being the pandemic and the war in Europe, right? That whole thing that is uh, uh, precipitating. And in all of those three periods, what you would observe unequivocally for India is that there's a bit of a uh, plateau, if you will, right, in the economy. But then it bounces back stronger than before in each of those episodes, right, consistently. And the reason then could be varied. But what it tells you as an investor is that what is happening foundationally in the economy is strong. We used to think of macroeconomics when we studied, right? It used to be number of people times productivity, right? And when you see an economy consistently demonstrate the strength, that means productivity is structurally improving, right? Factories are better, roads are better, electricity supply is better, utilities are better, people are more educated, there's more investment being coming into the country and the investment is getting deployed the right way. Things are not getting lost to corruption or just transmission losses, right? Exports are improving, imports are improving, value added by the, by the manufacturing sector is improving. All of those factors, right, start coming through and depending on the crisis, you can take which ones were really responsible. But that macro story is very strong for us from that perspective, right? The fact that we are resilient, right? This is here to stay. This is a phenomena that will continue for some time, right? So as an investor, it gives us not a fault. Uh, the second the, part of... The, it also acts as a hedge while the rest of the world is getting more badly yes. affected as compared to... Yeah, it's always easier to swim downstream, right? So if there is macro current is flowing the right way, it always helps you get far better investment return, especially in venture. If the other parts of investing which may benefit from still waters and even swimming upstream. But in venture investing, it's very true that you want to flow with the stream, right? So macro was a very important factor. Second important factor was also, right? So both financial services and technology as verticals. So technology is the easier story. I'm sure your viewers and listeners know internet adoption has gone through the roof. GPS costs per unit of data. Largest data consumer in the world, yada yada, right? Like and Flipkart, we I looked at a bunch of these numbers very closely. I presented a bunch of these numbers very closely. So story was very clear. But even outside, right? All of us can talk about how great e-commerce story has been, how great fintech story has been on back of it. But technology adoption is phenomenal in the country. 
I think the part that I want to talk more about is the financial services growth. Right, the fact that in India we have had, is focused on fintech as an investment. Yeah, we are globally we only do fintech investments. So working from that capital one heritage, fintech is what we focus on. On the financial services side, India has had professionally run banks for a long time, but also with government initiatives, the penetration of core fintech products. Right, core financial services product, sorry, has been very deep. Right, and as a bank account, UPI success wouldn't have happened without supporters stars from RBI and with all, without all the efforts of NPCI. Right, and uh, uh, UPI is the tip of the iceberg. Right, there is a huge RTGS, IMPS kind of system that sits on top of it. Technologies that have been adapted, adopted wholesale by banks is at the heart of KYC, the Jam ecosystem that came about, and even now, right. Oaken framework being drafted, AA coming live, right? Such a phenomenal initiative that uh, you can act, get access to any bank account within seconds for last three years with information flowing directly from your financial institution without being captured by any intermediary. That is mind-boggling how powerful that framework can be. And so, yeah, I think it's unparalleled. There's no other country which has done that, right? No. A lot of countries have done open banking, but it's quite crude and rudimentary. Mm. Compared to what India will witness, and like next three four years will be transformational. I think AIN has the capacity to even put just to verify is account aggregator framework for our test. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's account aggregator framework. What it allows is, so if I ask you Akshay, then with one consent you can allow me to get access to all your bank accounts for last three years, where the data will flow in a structured manner. So it's always readable directly from your banks to me without anyone else being able to tap into it in the middle, no matter who the intermediaries, the data will always flow directly. And so because it's coming directly from your financial institution, the veracity is very high. Because it's coming as structured, it can be readable. And third, there is phenomenal amount of data protection around it. So no one can intercept it or read it. And then the real power comes, the real, I guess the power also comes, the real power is here only. But the power also comes from the fact that you can Tack on other databases, you can tack on insurance on top of it, taxation on top of it, etc. So it just becomes more and more powerful. So what we thought of bureaus, like I wanted to read your positive and negative information when I was going to lend money to you. Now I can get that or probably far better quality information through AA, right? And then that opens up all kinds of cross-sell initiatives for asset management, for insurance, blah, blah, blah. Such things would not have been possible had the Financial services and technology thus had not grown that fast. We can talk about RBI and how the ecosystem has reacted and so forth. But as an ex-operator, I'm a big fan of RBI right? for two main reasons. One, as a reg when I look at them as a regulator, they haven't had a big credit event. And it's truly big, right? Like economy shattering big event hasn't had happened in the last 20 years, right? So RBI has not let anything blow up on its watch. And that's phenomenal. That actually is... So probably a set of one when you look at it globally. But few, for example, right? MS also, I think, has very distinctive track record. So there might be a few regulators who sit there. But that's the peer group you're talking about. The second part is forward-looking, right? Things like a UPI won't happen unless RBI didn't enable it, right? There are a million ways. I'm sure people have lobbied to slow down UPI, things that could have gotten it distracted, blah, blah, blah. So I have a lot of respect for RBI from that perspective. Second aspect is to the extent that the regulator can provide you clarity in terms of what can and cannot be done. It's phenomenal, right? Because, yeah, this kind of causes a bit of a speed bump, if I may call it, for a lot of fintechs today. But then the direction of travel is very clear. 
ये कर सकते हैं ये नहीं कर सकते यू कैन डू दिस यू कॉन्ट डू दिस एंड दिस हाउ यू डू इट राइट एंड इट फील्स लाइक यूर कंस्ट्रेनिंग इनोवेशन बट एक्चुअली वॉट है आउटपुट इज फॉर फिनल right so you i would expect some very creative solutions very innovative solutions to come out of india so going back to right macro was one part of the thesis sector was second part of thesis the third part of thesis for us is talent right and so india is phenomenal talent from especially from tech perspective a lot of venture capitalists will rave about it a lot of people would rave about it and it is true right and the only thing worth pointing out there is it's not a last five year or 10 year phenomenon india has had phenomenal tech talent at least since 80s right when we were growing up tcs and infosys used to take students by truckload to their campuses right and those guys have put in the hard work to build out the thinking build out the, the adoption among professionals of technology professions thinking about uh, contributing to how the tech in so many verticals globally has been right so a lot of financial services tech now sits in india with big banks in the us globally right so a lot of that has been sketched out and that talent then kind of spawned the next generation which created the first version of tech companies in india and now we are probably second or third generation of tech companies coming about services tech talent has transformed a little bit into product tech talent and so that's short survey so that part of the story is well hatched out right i think the part of talent that really excites me beyond that is the financial services standard right i have worked abroad for last seven of last 22 years where i worked years have been abroad right and in the those 17 years i have walked into a number of banks in the us in the middle east in southeast asia here in london of course right in most places you would find a substantial chunk of middle management will be of indian origin it's first generation and second generation indians right so it tells you two things right that banking and financial services is a profession is actually looked up to by indians that is not the story in many other countries right it's actually something that folks aspire to and second one only one shudders to imagine what would happen when some of this talent decides to move back into fintech in india right and talk looking at like uh, people like anurag and jitain who jumped out of asia to do startups i'm looking at people like chitresh who was here in uk and then moved back to india to do his startup and bunch of entrepreneurs like them right who can play a very significant role so when you talk of fintech talent in india is trained not only in tech but it's trained in fin part of it also which is very important right this is a regulated part of technology industry being able to understand the vertical that you are playing to involves a lot of not just technical expertise but a lot of judgment in what the regulator is trying to accomplish and how you play along with it so that was the third part of our excitement for the india story right Okay, okay, okay. Got it. What has been your investment thesis in India? What are you mm. over the last two years? You must have made a lot of investments. So, what are those themes around which you've been investing? Yeah. So, look, there are two lenses I we can talk about it. Right. The first is the kinds of business models we have liked a lot, and that we continue to pursue. And the second is ultimately everything has to tie back to a customer segment. Without customers, you won't have any. So, especially on the B two C side, you can talk about customer segments. So, let's go in that sequence. So, in terms of business models, there are three types of business models that are of very that are of deep interest to us, right? The first one is what I call full stack business model. The analogy there is this is Flipkart is the Amazon of India, right? But actually, it's not just Amazon of India. When Binnie and Sachin started Flipkart, they didn't have to just send books over internet, 
they eventually had to build the first road payment network in India. It was called cash on delivery. Still is called cash on delivery. Still is 70% of transactions, right? They invented cash on delivery and then they eventually ended up building eCart, which was the biggest logistics company in the country. It's not independent. That's why not a lot of people think of it that way, but it is in terms of its roots and shoots point of view. Right. So what happens in emerging markets is that if you look at any product value chain, it's broken at a lot of different levels. So innovation within a little tiny box doesn't count for a lot. It's a bit like what we were trying to do at TrueCaller. If you wanted to just cross-sell loans on a consumer app, there's so many things that are out of our control that were broken that the user experience is not going to be distinctive just because we have solved one part of the puzzle. Right. And therefore, those products won't succeed. So it's very hard for them to succeed. I would say they won't succeed, but it's very hard for them to succeed. So if you're building a fintech company in India, similarly, you have to eventually think of full stack renovation. I'm going to have, think about the problem across all value chain, value chain buckets, and then build tech and ops and everything to solve for all of them. Right. It may not be your starting point, but it should have the vision and the clarity to get there. Right. The best example is one card. They, from day one, right, are building a new credit card challenger in the country. They started with a scoring app because that was the way to acquire customers. But the focus always was that we will be a full stack credit card company in the country. Yes. Right. Has a bit of that vision that he's starting Jupiter for next 40 years, not four, not 10, 40 years, because he wants it to be become a, eventually a private banking player. Right now, it's a banking platform that is driving benefits from better experience leading to positive selection and being able to attract the right set of customers. Then it will go into a cross-sell sort of hypothesis and then it will hopefully start going more and more horizontal. But the vision is that it will be a full-stack institution whenever the timing is right. No one's in a rush. Whenever the timing is right, that's the destination for it. So full-stack is a big theme for us. The second theme for us is what we call embedded finance. So again, this phrase these days especially gets used and abused a lot. But from our purposes, embedded finance company is any company that necessarily doesn't operate in financial services, but through its product creates either a proprietary flow of customers or a proprietary flow of data to be advantage in offering financial services products. And for such companies, then eventually financial services becomes the main mo model for monetization. Right. Mm -hmm. So I take an example. We have this logistics company, which is which operates in the Mexico-US corridor. Right. It provides working capital solutions to truckers, fuel cost, etc. Et now that's a very specialist vertical, right? And we know nothing about logistics. QD, I would profess, know nothing about logistics. It works because for that company, it's able to target truckers. It's able to get data on how, like, which leg are they operating in, how frequently are they fueling up, where are they fueling up, blah, blah, blah. A plain old financial services company would not have access to that data. That data doesn't get captured in any bureaus. right? So you have proprietary source of customers, you have proprietary source of data, which is then helping you lend to those customers in a responsible manner. So there are, the, so those solutions we are quite interested in. There are two sort of companies that are playing into that in my portfolio right now. There is a finance peer, which is doing a verticalized lending. So it's targeting specifically school of schools and parents for lending. So if you are a private school, if you are send, if you are a parent in India, sending your kid to private school, the school would want the tuition paid once a year, maybe twice a year. 
Even that creates cash flow issues for you. Not borrowing issues, but cash flow issues. Just one month, that amount seems high. And so most people would either save up for that month or better still would cut out some of the discretionary spend for that one month so that school fees can be paid out. Right? And finance peer says, hey, this doesn't need to be a problem. The schools don't want to run collections. That's why they want all the fees collected upfront. We can take over the burden of running collections. In fact, running your entire finance piece of it, dear school. And we'll break the fees for the parents into sort of six months or 10 month installments. So the parents get basically no cost EMI, right? So they don't have to pay financing for it. And then the school gets all the cash up front. It solves problems on both sides of that. And then it becomes a wedge into thinking about the whole ecosystem of how the school operates, ERP software, payments, all of those layers can be layered on top of it. So it can become worth it. The second company, let me take it plays to theme number two and theme number three. So let me introduce the theme three and then I'll so th- theme three is the classic fintech or techfin, as people used to call it, which was providing technology to banks and financial institutions to operate better. What then the new stage there is to say, hey, because we don't just need to make the banks work better or help the banks work better, but also help them connect with fintechs, right? In India, especially, a lot of banks have realized that if maybe the first level realization is that digital is a fantastic way of acquiring new customers. Right. Um, and so they have the need to connect with fintechs. Large banks, let's say ICI and HDFC, would have the wherewithal to invest in technology themselves, right? They would have big enough teams and kind of strong enough focus that they can go very deep in. But now it's kind of next level down in terms of size. Those banks may or may not have that wherewithal. Some of them have, others may not. Some may have focus, others may not, etc. But Guess what? There's enough balance sheet to be built in fintech that all of them can and should participate. So the upswing takes that perspective that, hey, we will build the pipes to connect banks to fintechs and consumer techs for them to be able to sell products, right? Super Amazon, in fact, so and so forth, right? So that's what upswing is trying to do. It's trying to build, bring together not just banking APIs, but contract structures, and perhaps most importantly, regulatory compliance and data security so that any app can hold host an upswing SDK and be confident that everything from a regulatory perspective will be perfectly managed and then still be able to and it's a headless SDK so you can have your own brand upswing doesn't have any B2B thing they don't have any B2C ambitions right so we just need there but they power the back end of a bunch of X. so those have been the three main streams the company I didn't chance to touch upon is refined so that becomes relevant in the customer side of the story right so everyone draws this this classic analysis of pyramid right top of pyramid in india top 30 40 50 million customers who are responsible for 60 percent of gdp if you allocate proportionality, that analysis is never too accurate but what are like majority you can imagine majority of our gdp is coming from a good chunk of our gdp is coming from that top strata then you let's say our and of next 100, 150 million users who are the kind of emerging middle class, slightly affluent customers, so getting there, right? And they are responsible probably for, again, the next 20, 30% of the chunk. And then you have those next 200 million who are medically active, and then you have the another 200 million. The total match should add up around 800 million, right? Because that's the number of working age habits that we have. Right? Younger population means that we have phenomenal number of children, which is a good thing, right? For the 
IRDA, in fact, has made a lot of uh, announcements to to think of new licenses and insurance. They want to grow the number of insurers in the country. So that could be a vertical which could be very close to our heart and we, which you ought to think very carefully about. The management, so far, I've met all the companies that kind of we come, come across now know of, etc., etc. We haven't been blown away by any of the propositions. You write a check there. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we are not hopeful about the current and new players. We continue to look deeper to see what would make sense for a QED to participate in. For us, when you talk about it, but like the three, three, four main things that we look at. One of the first things we look at in the company is unit economics. Right? Being, being able to maybe not generate money on day one, but being able to at least illustrate the economics and have a line of sight into economics. That makes sense on a per transaction, per customer, per whatever cost center that you have, right? Per distributor view is very important, right? Since we have operated banks, we understand quite intimately that in financial services, no amount of capital is enough capital to burn. They say e-commerce, right? You can exhaust a whole bunch of capital to get customers. You can exhaust another chunk of capital to get those customers to repeat. But at the end of it, you have repeat customers, right? Here you have a bunch of capital, you can lend it out and they will never come back and you will have nothing, right? And they will know how to avoid you also in future. You will create anti-customers if you For us at QT, the first lens is get your economics right. That's what we say. You're saying the first filter is unit economics. Once you write economics, then you can spend money on acquiring customers, right? Acquiring a bunch of customers, for example, acquiring a bunch of customers and then saying that, hey, Something will work out. We'll figure something out. It's not a great QED thesis. Might work for other VCs. It works probably for a good chunk of technology ecosystem. But it doesn't work for us because we tend to be those operator lens and we go into the depth of it to understand why do you think this 
line item can work, right? And again, we're not going to badger down on 1% versus 2% kind of conversations, but you want to structurally make sure that the pro- the products make money, right? Unit commerce is the first field. The second filter, unsurprisingly, is exponential growth. So you can have very good positive unit economics business. So the classic example, I would say, is the SME lenders, right? Traditionally, SME lending has been a localized business, right? If a branch in a city lent to SMEs, that means it means all the shops or all the manufacturers in that industrial area or on that street, right? They inside out. First time basis, they're not everywhere. So if a machine for which they have lent to whatever manufacturer A stops working or whatever that manufacturer goes out of business, then they know who to send that machine to. So that level of specialization. So unit economics positive, done, right? Ability to scale exponentially, not done. Because what this means, this model means is you have to go and set up set up operations in whatever. Yeah, and you have to set up operations in every locality. There's a human involved. You have to train those humans to operate in similar ways, have a nose for similar Types of things, that's scaling this uh, exponentially with technology, something like technology is very difficult. Right? I won't say it's not accomplishable, but it's very difficult. So that's what the exponential growth filter says that hey, having done unity, can we show that this model will then scale exponentially? And again, on day one, it doesn't need to be. And the answer, hopefully, is not always we'll buy more Facebook and Google ads and therefore we'll be able to scale. It's better than that, but that's the second filter we are looking for, right? The third filter then becomes talent, right? And uh, talent, not in the, there are different stereotypes of founders, right? Venture capitalists always like to think of them as like type A, as a type 2, as a kind of thing. And all of those are important. I'm sure it's a basic kind of curiosity of human mind to bundle things up so they're easy to understand. So there's some classification that goes through. What we are looking for mainly in talent is one above and beyond what one thinks of in technology. Is that when starting up at fintech truly appreciates the gravity of what it means to start up in fintech, right? Typically, when you're building a tech company, you have to think of things like org and people recruitment, but you have to also think of like how what will be my technology that I'll build on, what will be the basic layers, what languages to work, like how important UI UX will be in driving growth. If you're doing B2B, then what kind of API architecture exists there? And therefore, what am I going to build there? Build in, build out all of that. So you have a strong point of view on technology, strong point of view on product, and a strong point of view on people, right? Like those are the important things in technology. But you're starting FinTech, you have to think of all of those. Plus, you have to think of, hey, is a regulator here? What do they want? But beyond that, like, what does it mean to do run a balance sheet, right? How do you think of a dead structure thing? Right. Why, uh, how much equity financing? What is your advance rate going to look like? All the way to if you're an insurer, then what kind of loss ratios will you operate on? I can operate on to ensure that your product is profitable, but at the same time, a reinsurer is willing to look at your books. Right. Wealth management, like, so what kind of recurring revenues are you able to, able to attract from these customers? Why would they stick with you when other potentials come up? So there are a lot of things that are fintech specific. Right, the talent lens is about understanding that the founder appreciates these two things and has thought deeply enough about these things, right? So that when we talk to him or her, then they can bring that across to us. So those are three lenses that we look at companies from to really assess if this is the QD type of company or not. Why did you invest in Khatabuk? Is like in that embedded fintech space, right? Which you spoke yeah. about one of your thesis. Plus. 
does seem to be scalable as an outsider. Yeah. So again, I shouldn't copy into specific companies, but there are a lot of use cases that have come up in the market, which are trying to simplify back office, classic back office, right? Kata book is trying to do the actual Kata book that she needs to have, Kata's that she needs to have. There are other players and globally that are out there. See, I think cross-sell is a difficult hypothesis to prove. Banking has struggled with cross-sell for the longest time. And if you remember history, then people who have claimed greatness at cross-sell then came out with it. They didn't have such a generous cross-sell ratio eventually once people started looking closely at books, right? Because there is a sort of compartmentalization of products and services that happens in the human's brain naturally. Like the ways to bridge across that in certain ways. But easily, it's not always easy to think of your accounting books as the way where you would want to then hop on to take a loan. Equally, so being able to do that depends on the quality of the data that's sitting there. Ultimately, all that it comes down to it, customer access and data quality. So if you think that you're able to capture the, those data, then it can become a phenomenal platform for cross-sellatory data point. But at the, it has a potential to be. Right, then it's still the consumer mindset shift that you have to jump against, right? If we just think of them as communication. Can I use something that I use for communication or borrowing? Yes, you can. Right? The Chinese story tells us that's possible. It's achievable. But there are certain circumstances that have to be true to be able to make the shift in the customer's mind for the product of it into that context, right? And then for their interaction to work in a specific way, I even accept it. So, is it achievable? Yes, it's achievable. But is it easy? I've got any, any shape or form. Right. Can you take me through the evolution of a successful company from seed to series D? At each stage, there must be certain key challenges they need to solve to move to the next stage. Yeah. What is your thesis on that? Yeah, look, in some ways, building a company is about answering a set of questions. Right, it's a set of hypotheses which, if all true or if majority of them true are to a significant extent, that will become a big company. Right, that's how we think about it. We've written a paper about it, call it the 0.9 to the power of six kind of thesis. Right, if you have 90% probability of success, succeeding on six questions, in reality, a probability of success is 40 or 50%, somewhere there, whatever the power. So, chances of success are low, basically, is the message, and like, therefore, having to tackle bunch of questions at the same time is not a great way of going about building a company. Again, not saying it can't be done, the probability is still 50%, but if you want to set yourself up for success, then would you do it that way? No, you would probably want to bias the odds a lot more in your own favor. So, so you know, don't try to disrupt too many things at the same time. Focus on one key area that you want to crack or one or two key areas. Yeah. So, you may have to still disturb a bunch of things. It's not to preclude that you should not disrupt too many things. I think the important thing is what you focus on, what is the question you are answering, should be maybe one or two questions at a time. Not Give me an example. What, what is this question going to sound like? Okay, we are starting. So let's say finance PR was starting on day one, right? We talked about the company, so explain the business model. First thing I would say is, okay, let's prove the unit economics. Let's figure out a few schools where we can go deep, lend to those schools, parents in those schools, show me those parents pay you back. Show me that there's a repeat story to be had. Show me that you can systematically go to 5%, 10%, 15%, 20% of parents in the school over time. 
Why would that happen? So let's spit that out, right? So if you have tested this in Bangalore and Mumbai, then let's go and test it in Nagpur and Ujjain, right? And let's go peer-wise, the spreading out. If you have tested this out with the Narayana, then let's find a local, whatever, uh, private school in Indore and then test it out there. And Jhasi can test it out there. And let's go to a different type of institution and see if it works. If you have tried it at school, let's try it at colleges and see if it works. Right, and universities need for it works. So, are there different types of education institutions? Right, so that that becomes a second vein of questions that you have to prove, right? And that then starts playing into the exponential scaling part of it also. That can this model actually exponentially scale? And in both cases, in parallel, you're answering the talent question any which way, right? If I have to, if I need us on the ground to make this work, can I get and train the staff? to operate independently north zone and west zone and east zone when I'm sitting in south zone, right? Why would that work systematically, right? Are there influencers there that can work systematically? Are there schools that think about it systematically, right? Are there commotions aligned with, with all of them? Let's think of what are the questions, right? In any business, you can think of it. Like when one card started, the first hypothesis thought of was a customer aggregation. Will it work through something like one score? Today, that app has 80 million downloads, right? It's a phenomenal community of people that they're gathering there, right? The second thing in the answer was, hey, therefore, can we cross-sell? No, because it didn't get cross-sell because very hard. Also, we started with the ambition of building our own products. So we are going to build our own products. So then they built the credit card product out. And within the credit card stack also, they went through a set of questions answering them. From your C to Series D journey, at every point, you should have one major question you're answering, maybe one or two minor questions that you're answering. Question is ever-present because you'll need people to solve all questions. So that question is ever-present. But then you should have systematically thought of it. It lines up with some benchmarks. So A should be around like a million dollar run rate. If we actually bullish markets like 2021, then having a line of sight to a million dollars is a great place to be. When we are in bearish market, then going past the million dollars is a great place to be. But somewhere there it lies in one benchmark, then the 10 is the next one. And then 100 is the next one, right? Like, uh, so it's just keep up with the explanations. But something around those lines, the 10 or 5 POs are there depending on if you're in a B2B vertical. Scale-ups take slower, but then they're more wrecked. And so, therefore, you might be able to live with a slower number of revenues. So, yeah, that's how there's a numeric aspect, but I think the judgmental aspect is far more important. So, when you talk to a leader stage company, we typically ask them, what are the questions you're trying to answer? What are the cards you're going to turn over? 
to be honest, life is more complicated than this conversation, right? So when you talk to them, they would be like, hey, now licenses are becoming available or now this opportunity has opened up or there is some regulatory change and therefore new segment has opened up. Those can also be very powerful drivers why we think we can accelerate the company to the next vector of growth. But again, opportunities present themselves, right? But as a founder, your job or as a uh, group of founders, your job is to simplify it into a series of questions that you're going to answer. Right? So be very clear on which is the most important one right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of those things about the what makes a company successful is to have very clear questions that you want to answer at each stage. What else yeah. is there? Things which make a company successfully scale. Yeah, so look, I think the classic things always hold. Right, being able like the right side of the right type of talent, be able to inspire them. That by far is the most foundational question. In my operating roles, it always came down to a people puzzle, right? There are only so many problems that you can solve on your own, where you can be present in the conversations. And frankly, at some scale, that becomes practically irrelevant, right? What becomes far more relevant is people who are discussing, driving, doing things on the behest of the company. And having the right set of people in those seats and having the right set of motivation for those people is much, much more important. Right? In fact, it's the only thing that will actually deter. Like everything else is on paper, right? This is when it's a road. So you can have all the best unit economics and you can have wonderful abilities to scale exponentially. But if you don't have people to execute on those, then frankly, everything else is relevant. Right. So the question is always the most important, right? Founders should always be thinking about that. See series A, series B, series C, series D, public, 10 years public, right? That question will never change. Always the most important question by far. Ultimately, any company is a collection of people. Having clarity of direction and purpose is very important. I think third thing, and they may not be necessary in that sequence because these are all important things, but having vision is very important, right? As a founder, you get rejected far more then you are accepted, right? Every single thing is a bit of a push. Recruiting is a push. Getting your first, second, third sales contract is a push. Getting customers to adopt your product is a push. Getting them to review is a push, right? Getting investors to invest is a push, right? There's a lot of pushing, right? And so what holds you, what drives you, right? At the very heart of it is then, I think, the vision part, right? Reason why I'm building this, but also how far and how big can this be? This actually the driver in my mind, right? As an investor, what it tells me is, hey, when I talk to you, can you paint me a picture of what this company would look like with 100 million revenue? Give me that picture, if you were. And what were the complexities associated with that picture that you're thinking of today? And what are those that you'll think of tomorrow? And why and all of that becomes a very interesting conversation. But in essentially, in a sense, right, what you're really testing there is can the founder envision an end state that is inspiring, exciting for them? Because that's the vision, then eventually, some version of that that they'll sell to all other counterparties involved. Right? They'll sell it to investors, then sell it to employees, they'll sell it to their customers, they'll sell it to their suppliers. Having a sense of vision, the rationale for it, almost missionary zeal, if you will, is very. For like fintech space, wouldn't the balance sheet, the way you structure the balance sheet also be like one of those critical things, like how much debt you take on and things like that? See, technical skills is important for sure. But somewhere in that vision, if you're especially thinking about fintech as an end state, there will be questions about regulation and there's there'll be questions protecting customers' interest. 
it should automatically surface, right? For example, there are a lot of places without naming anyone, there are a lot of places for making cheap tea. You can easily sell something worth $2 or $5 and make $3 off it and keep doing it till people realize that you're given inherent arbitrage that you're trying to adopt, right? There are any number of companies that we come across who are kind of based on these specific niches of where customers don't recognize the pricing, how it's inherent in the offering, and therefore they're able to capture the economic margin. Some places it's justified. Other places, for example, is just lack of disclosure and lack of understanding. Right. And those are the kinds of companies where, yeah, the founder has a vision, right? But the vision is not really attuned to regulatory standards, perhaps even ethical standards in some way, shape, or form is not the most customer friendly. Right. Your vision should be about customer delight, right? You're delivering something that is far superior to anything else on offering because that's the easiest way to get economic value. Right. Easy. When I say easy, I'm not saying easy in terms of it's being fast. It's the most sustainable way of creating value. The rate of protecting value. Because if you're creating genuine economic value, right? Something that used to get take you five dollars to get to, but I can offer you offer it to for four dollars and produce it in house for two dollars, then I have captured a margin. Right? Then it's economically accredited to everyone. You're creating value for everyone in the ecosystem and therefore you will grow go for faster and go for grow forth without uh, without structural issues. Right. So that's I think the point is bang on. Right, being able to understand regulatory and balance sheet aspects of it is very important. But I see that as being inherent part of the vision. It's rather than an additional thing. Right, there are a lot of additional things. To be honest, that you need you need to be you need to have a tech founder who understands what is the underlying tech of. You need to have someone on the financial side of it so that they can understand balance sheet. Actually, help you fund the balance sheet and run it in a structured manner. If it's a lending company or an insurance company, then you need someone with very strong credit. Background. If it's an asset management company, you need someone with very good asset investment understanding, right? Both have technical jobs, but you need to be either one of the founders should be proficient in those skills or be able to recruit, right? Uh, ideally, the founder, one of the founders should be proficient in those skills. So those things are needed, but they are table stakes. So as you said, they are things you need to play the game. Okay. So you would be getting founder requests for to meet because they want to pitch to you from a variety of sources. What is the source you value the most that if a founder comes through this source, then I would surely want to meet him? Yeah. See, true to QD, now we analyze backward looking which sources have been most valuable. So it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy also, to be honest, if I'm being completely honest about it. But there is an inclination and tearing between them, right? Like referrals tend to typically be the strongest source. Referrals from other founders, in fact, are the strongest source, followed by referrals from other investors, existing investors. But founder referrals are usually the, the, the strongest. The what's it, blind inbound, as you call them, where a founder just writes to you on email directly. Quite mercurial. So we have found some phenomenal companies there because our founders were just so amazing and they were undaunted, so as to say, right? They're confident of their vision and knew that QD was the right investor for them, that they left no stone unturned to reach out to QD. And those have been fantastic investments. But a lot of, there the important thing is to be able to distinguish from the noise because a lot of folks will reach out directly. Right, Your, my LinkedIn in particular gets bombed like crazy. So you should be able to distinguish yourself very, very quickly on why you are the one, right? But if you are able to, then that source is not, not bad. Frankly, I've done very little of outbound, like us reaching out to 
you'll get to founders. Our main thesis is that you'll have the brand and the openness to be able to attract the best founders, right? The positive selection is very important for us. Like founders should think think of QED as like a destination VC, right? If I'm starting up something in fintech, then having QED on my cap table would be magic. Hopefully, we are able to get to that point of view, but that's an aspiration nonetheless. And so, Involve will be at the main source for us even going forward. Okay, your is your limited partners who fund you. Are they from India? Are they from the West? What is the makeup of that? They're all. So we are a US fund inherently, right? Okay. So most of our LPs sit in the US. They are a diversity across educational institutions, long-term money managers, all the way to family offices. And frankly, Nigel himself is a big, so it's a big LP for us. Still is. So it's a mix of institutions, but we have very little penetration, if any, in India. That's something that we need to work on to kind of get more money from India for India, right? That's, yes. I think, that should be a, a source of capital for us. But mm-hmm. right now, it's all international and abroad. Yeah. Does it make any difference to the company on whether the money is raised from India or from outside? Like, from is there any transaction cost of raising from outside? For the company, so you're talking about a company incorporated in India raising money from foreign investors. Uh, I think there are a few things to be mindful of, right? There are no restrictions from RBI in terms of money being invested into FinTech. But if you're operating a regulated entity, right, if you're raising into an NBFC, then you need to be a bit more thoughtful about because what the regulator essentially cares about is that the decision-making should sit within its jurisdiction. And so there are a lot of shady ways in which foreign companies can own companies in India and their decision-making then sits abroad. Clearly, that's not the case when venture investing is happening. I'm not going to sit here and make decisions for Indian market. But you need to be mindful that would be one of the scrutinies that you may have to go through. So to think about what that would mean. Right. It practically means from an ownership perspective, there are no restrictions for us. We can own as much and go as deep, but we just have to be very clear in terms of the company charter, the way what the reserve clauses are structured, how the governance works, so that the decision making sits firmly in India. And it's very transparent to anyone looking at the company from outside. But like in our journey in India, and I know from a lot of foreign investors as well, we have never had any issues on this, right? And in fact, most funds based in India are also actually domiciled abroad, right? Sequoia, Axel, Matrix, Elevation, all of these funds, actually money is sitting abroad, right? The investors are sitting in India, but are just the advisors to the fund, the actual fund sits abroad. So it fills out foreign capital in that sense, right? So it has not been an issue for the longest time in India. India has been very set up for that. Of course, there are matters regarding taxation and how easily and quickly can the money come in and come out. All of that, that can be improved, right? Those are all ease of doing business kind of thing. But structurally, it's pretty well set up. That taxation would only kick in at the time of exit, right? Like when you're investing... That startup, which is receiving the funds, there are no transaction costs, taxation costs. for you Unless you're coming in through. Yeah, unless there's a secondary component to your investment. So then taxation could come in upfront. You'll need to get your tax IDs and all of that. The second part of it is like, how deep is the KYC? How is that done? At what level is it done? Do you would prefer like a one single window clearance where you're accredited by a central authority and then Basically, anyone, as long as you have that certification, everyone else is fine with it. But what tends to happen is for every transaction, you go through a process. So there are things to simplify, right? Which will make it much faster, right? The parallel I hold is if it's a deliver C corporation that we are investing in, right? The investment would close in a month and a half. Whereas if you're investing in an India domiciled company, 
that would probably take two or three months to close, right? So those are the kinds of, that's the delta. But again, as kind of people get better and better at these things, as venture becomes deeper and deeper, things are just getting faster and faster. Do you see funding drying up from the perspective of your ability to raise from LPs in India, in the startup ecosystem in general? Most founders talk about how there is a slowdown in funding and the numbers also back it up. Does it similarly also get experienced at your level where you see your LPs are not as willing to back your next fund, for example, and so on? Yeah. So QVD is particular and has not, is not facing anything like this, but I can imagine that happening across the ecosystem. See, from an LP is a money allocator, right? Asset allocators in some way. So they have to allocate a certain part of their balance sheet towards private funds and a certain part towards public funds. So now as public markets have underperformed, then the proportion gets worse, right? Suddenly you look overweight in private markets because your publics have dropped. And private doesn't get marked up as frequently, so it doesn't get marked down also as frequently. Right? So you look overweight, so then that creates an allocation issue. But those are the wide phenomena. From an LP perspective, the QD proposition is that we are a specialist investor, right? So we have the high beta returns of financial services. We have the high beta returns of tech into our asset class, if you will, which distinguish us from other private investments or other VCs that you would invest in. And it will also distinguish us from other specialist funds that you distinguish in. Right. So as an asset class, so as an asset class, we are quite distinguished within their spreadsheet or within their book. Right. And frankly, we are not that big in the ecosystem. Right. If you look at the universe of private investors, investment opportunities across hedge funds, Venture capital, private equity, growth equity, all of those, right? Restructuring special opportunities fund, all of that goes into that 30, 40% alternates bucket, right? Within that, like, you're a billion dollar fund. And so, billion dollars is huge from a venture perspective. But from an alternate bucket, it's not that significant, right? not that big. Okay. What do you mean by high beta? You sister? High beta means uh, it's a public markets analogy, but if you analyze sector returns, Right. So if you have ETFs or exchange traded instruments or index funds, right, for every vertical for financial services, manufacturing, agro, consumer goods, that is, so and so forth. And you analyze movement of these indices relative to the overall stock market index. Right. Then some of these would have a lot of volatility associated with them. When the market goes up, they go up a lot more. When the market comes down, they come down a lot. Right. And some of them will be counter cyclical. When the market goes up, they actually go down and when, or they plateau. And when the market goes down, then they can continue to stay flat. So they're relatively robust. Right. And you can think of like Insha and all of that will be relatively more stable, slightly debt like, if you will. So they're, they're more stable and then you'll have more volatility. So typically, tech, technology index and financial services have very high betas. And beta means it's more volatile. Like the term uh, it's beta. more volatile. So okay. when the market goes up, then it's more, even jumps up even high. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when the market goes down, it next to the extent that we are in down cycle, then financial services and tech are a great place to invest your money in because whenever the market goes up, then these indices should rise a lot more. So you should take that and and the reason for that high beta is obviously market performance, but there's also the underlying structure of earnings, the underlying structure of companies, the value they add. All of that, right? It comes into a lot of structural factors. So if you take that and apply it to private markets, then fintech should be the part that should 
we think up again when the investing climate are you at all interested in defi decentralized finance like the evolution of no. fintech over a decade or so would eventually be defi right do you not believe that um no so we actually pay a lot of attention to crypto i would say we are not the most forward looking investor when it comes to crypto you are fairly late to the party as a third to put it but essentially you are very cautious because we didn't fully understand the technology and we didn't understand the full implications of the technology so the in the market the way it was last year and the year before we were very cautious we have done a few investments we have a board position on an exchange in mexico we have a crypto payments company where we sit on the board in canada for example so we did take a few calculated bets into the vertical but we are quite cautious because we wanted to understand what is really going to happen here and so our cio actually frank rotwen he probably spent like 50 60% of his time looking at crypto for last year and half trading with his own money so he gets a good sense of it but also doing small investments get a broader sense of the community understanding the community right what is driving it coming here and he really spearheaded us thinking on crypto in many ways we individually as partners also so i have placed a small bet in motrex which is a crypto company in india but talked to a bunch of them as we evaluated motrex but as we evaluated beyond it etc etc see our main kind of takeaway were two twofold right one it's a bit of hammer looking for a nail so we don't really under we don't think of is currency the right problem to solve or not we are not fully bottled right is the right problem to solve there's a bit of an at the same time there are aspects of it which are evident would have some applications so tokenization especially as it applies to reward streams and other non monetary forms of signaling could be a phenomenal phenomenal use case so there are some use cases which are of value i think insra is in general we are optimistic on because again we think it's a phenomenally powerful hammer so anything that makes the hammer even better should be of value but the nail one thing we have found it yet that we don't know exactly what the problem is that we are trying to solve right because going back to the origin of money and all of that right, it was supposed to be a medium of exchange and a store of value and it had value because someone said that this has value right so can you have a, a group thinking that this has value and therefore it will retain value surely this is suggestion yes but if you really trace back the origins of money then no it was because the king the big man in the village said that this has value therefore it had value So someone had to stand behind it, and someone's physical, physical might have to stand behind it for it to hold value. So today, say anything that everyone believes will have value will have value because we are all democratized and sort of individual aspirations and all of that. But the heart of financial system did rely on might of an individual, if I may say so, individual or what institution. Can you structurally solve for that trust? Surely you can. Yes, you can. But is that going to be just us believing? maybe not maybe the more nuances to it that we need to think bit more carefully and then especially in context of emerging economies right like india india has had very strong currency controls for a very long time right since independence or probably even before before that i haven't studied but since independence for sure right even today if you want to take more than 250000 dollars out of the country it becomes phenomenally difficult and there are very good reasons for it right those laws and protections are actually then well to india if you look at history so when the institutions in the country just abandon these controls no that's not going to happen when they recognize the value that a technology like this can bring and if we think that it actually is better value then will it actually get adopted in some shape or form yes because in one leading indicators perspective very forward looking regulator 
development at government, development of the Indian finance ministry, blah, blah, blah. So therefore, there's value on the table. They will see it and they'll adopt. But there's also value in the restrictions we have. And I don't think those are going away anytime. You said tokenization is a use case which you can get behind. What do you mean by that? Give me an example. Jet Airways, right? We all used to fly Jet Airways. And those jet privilege points were of lot of value. Jet miles, I think you call it or something. Jet went away. Those points still stuck around for some time for people to monetize them. Frankly, I think I lost balances there. So I didn't keep track of it. But had it been tokenized and it been tradable in some shape or form, this is a value we have protected. Oh, oh yeah, that, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, that would be super interesting. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.